Well, first, let me say what a pleasure it is to be invited to this august place of learning, the constellation of brilliance that uh, gathered here in the 1820s and 30s is still the stuff of which fiction is made as much as anything else, as those who were to shape what a Methodist will always call the second Oxford movement uh, did their stuff, thought their thoughts, and prevailed upon the spirit of the generation they lived in and those that followed. And I'm more than grateful, therefore, for the two hymns, not one but two hymns of Charles Wesley, Christchurch and Lincoln, of course, um, with which um, the chaplain has made a big effort to make me feel at home this evening. It's good to be here and to share just a thought or two in this Easter season. After all, we spend rather a long time thinking through the darker tones of Lent, which lasts for 40 days, and don't always spend quite enough time on the rather more gladsome tones of Easter, which lasts for 50 days. So here we are, beginning of term, and it's still Easter. A couple of months ago marked the 10th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, and I heard many people fulminating about the folly of that particular moment in British, recent British history. The trouble was that at least half a dozen of those who were quite vociferous in their criticisms of what had happened 10 years ago, I remember myself hearing 10 years ago them saying that they were in favor of that invasion. It's a curious fact of the way we look at the past that we do allow subsequent events to remind us or to enable us to forget what was once the case. We read history backwards. In Cambridge, where a friend of mine, a Regis professor, a Herbert Butterfield, had worked very hard on what now we call historiography, which is the history of how history is written, um, had reminded us that um, the Whig interpretation of history isn't good enough. That way of looking at history uh, through our prejudices and accumulated experiences as if history could be read as a justification for what happens now. Now the gospel reading that was chosen for this evening suffers in a similar way, only it's at the other end of the emotional spectrum. It has suffered the curse of the happy ending. It is after all known as a gospel that is, it purports to be good, gladsome news. And yet it ends with these extraordinary words, for they were afraid. And in view of the fact that rather extraordinary things happened within Christianity after the resurrection, within decades it was scattered around the Mediterranean world and with a couple of centuries, within a couple or three centuries it had embraced the Roman Empire itself as it swept on its triumphant way. And a lot of people looking back through those subsequent events could not permit themselves to allow something that called itself good news and which they had experienced as good news to end on this word, for they were afraid. And if you look at any relatively modern translation of the New Testament, you'll find three or four purported endings to the Gospel of St. Mark. Happy endings, beautiful endings, lovely literary endings, but wrong 
endings added after the fact. So here we are faced with the fact that they were afraid. That's my best bet for what was the original ending. And how do we cope with the fact that this particular piece that we heard a moment ago is full of words like uh, they were alarmed, they trembled, they were amazed, they were afraid. The gospel ends in those famous two Greek words, ephobunto gar, where some people say that in the whole of Greek literature there is nothing else that shows a sentence that ends with the word gar. Well, we can no doubt discuss that in a seminar uh, or over a glass of red wine any time we like. But I'm more challenged by these words. I don't want to be dismissive of them. Of course they were afraid, because Jesus, whom they'd put away in the tomb as a dead cadaver, seemed either not to be there, or there seemed to have happened something extraordinary around his person. None of that had sunk in. This was immediate response. Afraid is what they ought to have been in the light of what they were experiencing. The people who'd followed Jesus most closely through his life had had a pretty rough time of it since he snatched them up from nowhere and turned them into followers. They'd had to be with him when he was teaching his radical thoughts to his generation. They were radical, you know. I mean, whatever critics say these days, familiarity for those of us who continue to follow breeds its own particular kind of contempt. They were very radical thoughts. Radical thoughts which, if lived upon and thought through and endorsed by generation after generation as if they were fresh for every generation, would really have given us a different world from the world that we have now inherited. And these poor people with Jesus had had to listen to these radical thoughts that challenged conventional thinking. He courted controversy. There were arguments. There were people plotting to take him away. They'd had to follow as best they could this man who always seemed just a step ahead of them, just somewhere else for all their best efforts to keep up with him. And then in the end there was the arrest and the passion and the death and all the rest of it that we are equally familiar with. And now, at last, they knew they had him where they knew what to do with him. He was now dead. They were accustomed to dealing with death, to washing the body and laying it out, to preparing it for the tomb, to laying it to rest, to observing all the things that are appropriate in such circumstances as they mourned his passing. And on that day, that Sabbath day, they went off to... Uh, with spices just to do their duty once again. They were now in charge of this phenomenon called Jesus. It was now their turn to take the lead. And suddenly, the stone is rolled away, the tomb is empty, they're confronted by truths and realities that they could not begin to comprehend, and everything has been turned upside down again. Where is he now? Could that have been their only question? Afraid is exactly what they were. This coming week would have been a special birthday for my brother, my only brother, who died 10 years ago. I remember going, called to his bedside by his wife, who said that he'd been 
in a coma for two days and uh, not to expect therefore any communication but that I was wanted there before the end. I went with my son. We sat on his bed. But when I went into the room, I said, Jim, guess who's come? He sat up, having heard my voice. We'd been boys together. It was only a year between us. We'd uh, romped over South Wales in gangs and I don't know what and played our games and, and challenged each other to daring do and all kinds of things. We had been very close. When he heard my voice, he sat up in bed. We had two or three minutes of very, very lucid conversation before he said, I'm tired now, Les. Lay down again, and then later died. Well, I tell you, the people in the room who'd watched him in a coma for two days were frightened out of their skins at the, the abruptness with which he sat up in order to have a conversation with us. It was just completely against all that they were beginning to allow themselves to think and feel. And I imagine that something like that must have been going on in this story too. We must not read history backwards. We must recognize the astonishing nature of what it was that suddenly turned the world upside down. I think that the resurrection is to Christianity what the Big Bang is to any theory of the universe. It, it, it's where it all began. It released energy that continues to carry things on its way. Nobody can quite get back to the very beginning and assemble all the facts. And out of it has come, has come an amazing story that has produced its own fruits and continues to do so right down to the present moment. Not that it's without its difficulty. Even dear old St. Paul, for all his cleverness, when he was in Athens telling the story to the Athenian parliament, even St. Paul, when he came to telling them about the resurrection, found that all the members of Parliament trooped out, saying, don't ring us, we'll ring you. I tell you, parliamentarians are like that even now. But I'd better not go on about that either. I think we would do ourselves no services, no, um, we, don't, we don't do any favours by simply wanting to turn the gospel message into treacle, into something sickly sweet. There are rough edges. It's full of all kinds of difficult things. It's challenging. But amongst what is difficult, we can always hope for what is beautiful. And let me end with this, because I've been told that I have um, eight to ten minutes, by the way, and the dinner depends upon it, so um, I must uh, make haste here um, and uh, just finish quietly and quickly. But uh, um, just uh, from the years that I lived in, in Haiti, in the Caribbean, we were there for 10 years. And I remember one Easter Sunday going out to take a service in a place downtown in Port-au-Prince, a, a city that has had more than its fair share of problems, especially in recent times. But even then, there had been a hurricane. There was mud all over the place. We had a four-wheel drive vehicle to get us to an in-town little chapel uh, where there was a clinic and a school and all the rest of it. And I was warned that it was going to be difficult after the rains of the previous day, Easter Sunday. We got there. I got out. I had my Wellington boots on. Um, I carried my robes as high up my person as I could. They showed me how they'd made an ingenious path for me to follow with tape taken out of a cassette and strung from bits of wood. Follow that and you'll be all right, they said. It did look very precarious, I have to say. 
And when we got to the end, over an open sewer, they'd put two benches from the schoolroom. And we had to walk timorously across those benches, falling into that, I promise you, would not have seen me here this evening. And off we went, and in I went, and came in at the back of the church for the Easter ser service on Sunday morning. It was full. And every single person there who'd come through the same trajectory as I'd followed was dressed impeccably in white from head to toe, shirts and trousers and dresses. I don't know how they did it. But I got to the front, still marveling at uh, what I saw in front of me. And when I turned to face them, only then did I see something in the yard I had just walked through. It was a flamboyant tree. It was a flamboyant tree that had come up through the same mud that I had negotiated with such care, with the filth and the stench. It had come up, it, his, its branches were spread wide against a blue sky that particular day, and wonderful scarlet flowers studded with gold along all the branches. All that beauty against that sky, because somewhere underneath all that muck there was a goodness, what another graduate of this university called that dearest freshness, deep down things, which was feeding that tree and creating that beauty. The Easter lesson for me suggests that living in a dirty world, we do ourselves no favors to shut our eyes to the difficulties, but we must always hope that some way may be found to release the inherent and intrinsic beauty that is at the heart of God's creation. That's a ministry for everyone, not just those of us with our collars the wrong way round.